So it's appropriate that I say something about my own mother, since it's Mother's Day. Um, my mom uh, is going to be 90 this year. Um, on the right, is that's 1944. She's about 20 years old. Um, she moved from Detroit to Chicago to draw fashion design for a company in Chicago. On the left is uh, 1963. So she's way over on the left. She always wore headbands. It was like her thing. I just remember her in headbands all the time. I'm the kid that's been forced to wear a tie that's in the front there. Um, <laughs> and then in the middle, that's uh, 1994. So our oldest was just two at the time. Um, so I don't know about you. I interact with this day with lots of some very, very good memories. On, our, on Mother's Day, we always went out to eat after church. Um, but we went out to eat every Sunday after church. So my mom... <laughs> And then we'd go buy a bunch of groceries and give them to my mom to put away. That was kind of what she got on Mother's Day. I'm not sure it was a good deal. Um, but um, I, have, I have good memories with that um, and have gratitude and uh, get a smile when I think of my mom. She always kind of entered into things in a, um, always saw the best in everything. It was kind of her approach to things. Um, but I, inter- I interact with a day like some of you with heartache as well. Um, you know, Mother's Day is a, a unique day, so we are, if we were to go around here and share all of our wide open experiences, how we feel about Mother's Day and moms and our own mom, we would be all over the place. And there is joy and there is pain and there is hurt and heartache and loss and all those things. My mom, uh, she's in an assisted care place, um, content and uh, pretty happy there. She um, has short-term memory loss, so she, she doesn't remember what's happening that day. But she remembers everything from before. So if, if she sees me, we can have this great conversation. We'll talk about everything. But she won't remember that I was there the next day. Um, but within like the last maybe three to six months, she's getting pretty confused at this point. So now she talks about things that I'm not really sure what she's talking about anymore. Um, so I haven't, I haven't spoken to her in a year because I can't call her. Um, if I call her, it just um, if she sees me, it works very well. If I'm on the phone, she just doesn't quite get what's going on and just creates confusion. So there's a measure of heartache that comes with that, and many of us know that from a variety of places, um, from a variety of places. So we would just want to acknowledge that we come from all different places with this today, um, but uh, we come before a, a God who steps into all those different places in our life and does a work with us. So let me pray for a moment, and then we're going to open up this uh, particular psalm this morning. Father, I just pray that you would, um, as we've already prayed, that you would touch each of us um, where only you know we need to be touched. And even on a day like this, it's a day full of uh, mixed emotions. Um, I am thankful that you are so great that you um, can enter in all those different places. And um, ultimately, Lord, we look to you for life, for who we are, um, for what you want to do in the midst of us. And um, so may we run to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. I picked uh, Psalm 131, um, mainly because it's got this imagery of a mother and child. Um, aside from that, um, we're not re- I'm not, it doesn't really connect with Mother's Day, other than the fact that I think it's something, um, perhaps the message here that moms in particular need, but I think it's for sure um, something that we all need to hear and need to be entered into. So we're just going to walk through this psalm, and I'm going to read it again, because I really wanted to kind of start working its way into our hearts. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. 
My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But rather I have calmed and quieted my soul like a winged child with its mother. Like a winged child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Uh, Spurgeon, speaking about this psalm, said it's one of the shortest psalms to read, but it's one of the longest ones to learn, and I would think that that's true. Um, It's going to call us to learn the discipline of entering into a sanctuary in our soul, and in that place, because the Lord is there in the Spirit, there's peace, there's calm, there's order, there's clarity, there's rest. It's a place where we're cared for, where we're loved, where, where we're gently reshaped, where we are embraced, And that place resides within us because the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us. And all of us, all of us desperately need that kind of place. Um, As a matter of fact, we have not been designed to be able to really function in life without functioning from that place of quietness and rest and calm that only God can bring as he settles on us in our life. I think it, it's, it's particularly can be helpful for moms, either that if you're a young mom who pours out all day into the care of others as well as all sorts of other things, then we get, can be spent. Um, I think it's for moms who have poured out their whole life and now their kids are gone and they're looking for something else and what goes on with that. Um, the Lord has prepared a place for all of us that we can come in these places and God embraces us and fills us and touches us, and shapes us, and prepares us for the things that he's had. God has prepared this place, the sanctuary of our soul. Um, Thomas Kelly, who's a Quaker, calls it, um, that's what he calls the sanctuary of our soul. But too often we fail to access it, or we only kind of go that place when everything else is already lying in ruins, and suddenly we realize I really need to get there. But God wants to invite us, I believe in this psalm, to go there over and over and over again, day by day, moment by moment. The psalm was, appears to be, have been written by David before he was king. At this point, David's already been anointed. He's been called to be a king. He knows he's going to step into it, but that's not what life looks like yet. Um, at this point, he's being chased by Saul. He's trying to honor him. Um, life is not going well. His questions are not being answered. He's uncertain of the future. And in that setting, God gives him um, this psalm, even, even as he's uh, filled with exhaustion even and some confusion, God's going to bring this psalm to him. So what I want to do is I want to give you my whole outline right up front so you all know what we're doing, and then I'm just going to piece it apart. So we've got, a, I don't know if you'll be able to read this, but I've got a little outline up here that, that'll come up on the screen here. We've got um, three parts in this, uh, in this section here with three verses, which makes this really convenient. So on the left side here, we're going to look at verse one, which is talking about a transcendent God. The, this psalm is a uh, is, is like a two bookends. And on one side, we have a transcendent God. On the other side, verse 3, we're going to have a God who loves and cares and steps into our life, uh, an incarnate God. And in between, we have this little sanctuary that God calls us to in between these two great truths. And there's two responses to that. In, a, in this place of sanctuary, as we think about transcendent God, our response is going to be humility and submission. As we consider that God is incarnate and faithful and loving, our response is going to be hope and trust in him. That's coming from verse 3. And as I said, in verse 2 is the place that we want to go today 
we want to discover how to go into this place, this place of sanctuary that's calm and that is quieted. Um, so verse 1 is going to be a transcendent God. Verse 3, a faithful um, incarnate God. And verse 2 is the sanctuary of calm and hope. So let's start with verse 1. It's the transcendent God on verse 1. He says this, My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too marvelous um, for me. First of all, it says a heart is lifted up. The, the idea here is a heart that's raised up and puffed up. That's the, that's the wording here. A heart that's puffed up. That's a prideful heart. Um, David says, I'm not, I don't have a heart that comes before you thinking that I'm on equal terms with you or that I have something to offer that will make me acceptable to you. I come, he says, I don't come in that way. I don't come with a prideful heart. David understands his position before God, that when God is transcendent, which means he's wholly other, he's um, the idea that if God did not reveal himself, we would know nothing about him because he's so far outside of us. Um, and David says, I come to him, that kind of God, and I'm not going to come up, I'm not coming with anything but a humble heart. I'm not going to come prideful because there's no place for that before a God who's transcendent. Only God is raised up. And then he says, my eyes are not raised too high. The picture here is um, of one who's bowing down. So um, it's, it gives us a picture of Moses before the bush. Um, Perhaps the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, when they bowed down, when Jesus all of a sudden was transfigured before them. It could be the disciples who were in the boat, remember? And when Jesus revealed himself as God, and they bowed down. We have John in the book of Revelation who comes into heavens, and, and, and he's immediately bowed down. We have Isaiah who has a vision of the throne room, and he's bowed down. And David says, when I come into realization that God is transcendent, he is just out there where I can't even grasp him, my eyes are not going to be raised up. My eyes are bowed down because that's the posture before that kind of God. He understands what he's like. And then he says here, he says, I don't occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous. Things too great is just the things that are unrevealed. God just has simply not told us yet. So there's all sorts of things, of course, that we don't know. The scriptures are not always clear in everything. And so there's all these things that we don't yet know that we just want to figure out. And he says, I'm not going to spend my time with that because God's chosen not to show me those things. And so I'm going to trust him enough to leave those things um, with him. Um, the things that God has not answered. The scriptures say that God's ways are not our ways. And David recognizes that. As a matter of fact, in the midst of his life, he's being chased down. He's supposed to be the king. It's probably thinking, what is going on? And yet God has not shown him the details of it, so he says, I'm not going to occupy myself with the things that God has not shown me yet. I'm just going to try to walk the things that he calls me to do. It refers to the things that we try and grasp or understand, um, and yet without being God, we can't get them. Um, they just they seem to slip through our fingers. We just can't get our minds around it. Um, one version uh, uh, says that, that he doesn't occupy himself with things that are none of his business says it that way. And there's a sense of God because, um, and that it sounds like, come on, God, that's not a good thing to say to us, but a God who's holy and transcendent, there are some things that are God's business. And he chooses maybe not to make them our business forever, or for at least for a moment. And David here says, I'm not going to occupy myself with those things. Um, 
Jesus even told his disciples at one point they want to know what was going on, and he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons yet. And their response to that was supposed to be, okay, we'll trust you on that. And then he says, I don't occupy myself with things that are too marvelous. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't consider the marvelous things, but we don't necessarily think that we can figure it out. So when we look at the stars, um, we look at somebody's eye, which is pretty incredible. Um, you get up to a saguaro cactus and look at the details of how it's made and everything that's about it. Um, whatever it is that grabs your attention, that's, wow, that is incredible. We're to be amazed by it, but because it's made by a God who's transcendent, we're not going to figure it out. Um, it's going to just give us a glimpse of the wonder of all that God is. And so um, this starts out here where David understands those things. David starts by pointing to a God who is wholly other. He's beyond this place. We use the word transcendent. A God that we can never, ever fully fathom, understand, or describe. And so it seems a little strange. So why did, when we're talking about getting to the sanctuary of a soul, place to be embraced, why do we start out with that? Well, David starts with that because if God's stuck in this place with us, then we're all in trouble. And the great truth is that God is outside of all this. Um, God is bigger than all the things that occupy us and that press upon us and that, that weigh us down. And the very fact that God steps outside of this place is the very reason why we can actually trust him with our lives um, because he's bigger than all that. So praise God that he's transcendent. As I said, if, he's, if he is stuck in the midst of this world and its demands and its struggles and its questions, then God is just a companion along the way rather than someone that we can completely drop our life upon who's bigger than all of those things and can carry us through it. When I concern myself with matters too great and needs and problems that exceed my grasp, whether it's the crises that are out in our world or it's just the simple interactions of our families, um, the things that are outside my control, when I try to run the world as if I had the authority or ability to do so, and guess what? We all do that sometimes. We all think they're within our grasp. We all think we can make it happen, and we can control it, and that we understand it, and that we can somehow make it all work together. When I think that way and forget that this lands on the hands of a transcendent God, what do I get for it? I get anxiety. I get fear. I get weariness. I get overwhelmed. I become discouraged. Um, all those things. And how many of us have felt that way? Um, we all do at times. So what should be our response when we understand that God is bigger and God is transcendent? What's the response to a mighty, all-knowing, marvelous, perhaps somewhat unknown, um, wondrous, and transcendent God? Well, our response is to be humility, submission, and worship. Humility, submission, and worship. So as we think through this, wanting to go to this place, this sanctuary of rest, which is where I want to go, it begins, David begins with, you, we have got a God that is incredible. And the first place we start when we begin to fathom and begin to ponder on that and begin to embrace that truth is it, it calls for us to have humility, which is why David says, I'm not lifting up my heart. I'm not lifting up my eyes. I'm going to stay bowed down. I'm not going to um, think I can grasp these things. Rather, I am going to submit to what you've said. I'm going to humble myself before your throne, and I'm going to give myself in worship, because that's what we do to a transcendent God. We worship him. It's good that we have a God 
who is way beyond us. So on the one side, we have this bookend. We have this great truth that God is so much greater. And for all of us, um, that should be good news, that we have this great God. On the other side, at verse 3, we have a faithful incarnate God. It says here, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Um, so when do we hope in God? Like all the time is what it says. From this moment to the next moment to the moment after that, and on and on and on and on it goes. We're to hope in him all the time. And why can we hope? Um, if God is holy other and he's transcendent and he's just out beyond our reach somewhere, why do we have hope? We have hope because God is incarnate as well. And God has stepped into this place and God is near to us. It says here, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Um, he suddenly brings it down and he says, remember that this God who's transcendent, he's the one who has a people that he's called his own. He calls them the nation of Israel here. And they can find hope in him because God has entered into their life and created them as a people and has spoken to them as a people. We hope, um, our fears can be that God doesn't quite meet us because he is holy other. And we wonder about how can he help us and does he really care about the things of our life? And we have all sorts of things, don't we? Um, it can be our jobs or a lack of one. It can be the hurts that we feel from someone's comments. It can be discouragement and not getting things done. Um, for moms, it can be um, how do we take care of our children or after they've left, what's going to happen with them. Um, our loneliness, our undone stuff our unmet needs, the dreams that we have, all these things occupy our hearts and minds all the time. We're just filled with them. And so we have this transcendent God who's out beyond it, but he says, I've stepped into a people's life, Israel, and I have entered into time and space, and I've made them mine and care for them. He says, hope in the Lord. Hope means that we can count on him, that God will be there. That all these things that seek to occupy our time and attention and our minds and hearts are safe in the arms of a transcendent God who has entered time and space to make a difference. Hope was most fully realized for Israel, and hope was most fully realized for us the day Jesus entered this place and was born and he walked among us. We looked at this in Philippians. Remember, we said that what was a name that was greater than every name? It was Jesus. Well, he's got all sorts of names. Why is that one the great one? That's because that's the one we can grab a hold to. That's the one that, that touches us, that, that walked in this place and we can relate to. A God who steps into our world and our life, who is just as grand and mighty as always, but now that transcendent God is here and he's present and he's active and he's involved in our lives. I've shared this verse before, but one of my favorite verses, Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, it says what? And I loved him. I loved him. The transcendent God steps in with love. Interesting, the psalm just before this, Psalm 130, uses exactly the same line as, as verse uh, 3 here, but it adds a little something different. It says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. The transcendent God steps in, and he pours out love and redemption upon his people. The same Jesus who was transfigured, who stilled the storm, who terrified the disciples, is the same Jesus who touched a leper, lifted up the woman caught in adultery, 
cooked fish for his friends on the beach, sat and had conversations at night with people who had questions. Um, that is the same God who's transcendent. Um, we have a God who wants what's best for us, who knows what's best for us, who's powerful enough to provide what's best for us, um, and he loves us so much that he's going to work to bring that about in our life. And the good news of this psalm is that on the one side we have this God who's holy other, and he's just absolutely, wow, he could do anything. And on the other side we have a, a, this recognition that and he does do everything. He has stepped into this place with love and compassion and redemption, and he has intertwined himself, this, this uh, transcendent God, into our very lives. And our response here, what does he say? Hope or trust. To trust him. To trust him with those things. He stepped in. He says, he comes right alongside us. He goes, I can take care of all these things. And I'm not so far removed that I'm not caring about it. I am right, right here in the middle. And so he asks us to trust him with those things. By the way, trust means um, that you give it you give it up, isn't it? Um, we have these things, these cares and needs and, and hurts and worries, and, and God says, trust me with them. And when he says, trust me with them, he says, hand them over. That's the hard part, isn't it? Just to let them go. And let them go today, and let them go again tomorrow, and then on Tuesday, and again on Wednesday, and these things, remembering that we've got this holy God who steps in and he holds his hands out for us to lay those things upon him. Between these two great truths, a transcendent God and an incarnate God, we have this verse 2, a quieted soul, a sanctuary, um, which is what grips me about this passage. This is where I, we want to go. It says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a winged child with its mother, like a winged child is my soul within me. A couple things about this. First of all, we have a role in this. Interesting uh, David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. He takes some steps in order to put himself in a place where he can be quieted before God. Um, we must embrace and take hold of the things that we know about God, and it is those truths that help usher me into the quietness of soul. So one of the things we can do that we participate in is meditate on the incredible holiness of God. Meditate on the great love of God those things usher us into this place of a quiet sanctuary. As long as I focus on the things other than God, there's a barrier to going into that place, um, and that barrier is filled with anxiety and incorrect thinking. One writer said this, when our condition is not to our mind, we must bring our mind to our condition. And so no matter what's going on, we, we ponder the things of God, the transcendent incarnate God, and we let him bring the things of our life to bear on that as he draws us into this place. Second of all, David gives us a picture. And the picture is a picture of a child and its mother. Interesting, when it's talking about a winged child, it's talking about a child that does not need to breastfeed anymore. So um, we're not talking about the, the, the picture of the mother holding her child breastfeeding, which is, can be a great picture as well. But he's talking about a child that has, um, has breastfed and has been weaned from that. The child knows that... His or her mother will provide. Over and over again, for however many years it takes, um, that child has learned that when he or she is with his mother, there's safety there and there's provision there. And so, um, I mean, I didn't have to breastfeed, so I can't tell you about it. I could tell you I watched it go on. Um, but I know that sometimes it's really calm and everything's good, and other times it was not. Um, 
kids, uh, babies get frantic, they're hungry, and they're just, all they, just, they just want it, and it's like there's, there's almost panic in them. Um, sometimes it's right there for them, and they'll have none of it, even though they're hungry, and they just fuss and, and cry and all those kinds of things. There's a fretfulness about it. Um, David wants us to look at the child that has learned to trust that his mother will always provide, even if she's not getting what he wants right then. This is a picture of a child that may be, even be hungry and isn't getting something to eat right now, but with his mother, he knows it's okay, and it'll be provided for, and so it rests. Probably all of us who are parents have some picture we took of either a wife or a husband of us laying on the couch, crashed out, sleep holding our kid, right? We've all got those ones. We don't show them because we don't look too good. We're all worn out, but um, it's that picture where the child is now old enough, does not need to breastfeed, but knows it can trust his mother to provide, and just finds rest being there. Just to be there is all that matters. The picture of a child that knows that the mother cares and will provide at the right time, and in the meantime, the child finds contentment in that place lying against his mother. There's no crying with impatience, but there is contentment. And I believe uh, contentment actually is one of the greatest signs of a submitted, worshiping heart. When we are truly embrace contentment, even though, like David, we've got all sorts of questions, there's all sorts of things that are unrevealed, um, things that we can't control, we find contentment because we are with him, and he's been so faithful that we know it's okay here. Everything's okay in this place. And then thirdly, we get an explanation. What happens here? It says, I've calmed and quieted my soul. Um, our ambitions are at peace, and our spirit lies calm. The word actually can mean to make smooth or to make level. Um, we had some friends in uh, Seattle that had this big, huge sailboat that would take the, uh, our youth group kids out on. And um, I remember I got, went into the old bathroom thing that was in there. Um, and the, the boat was, we're on Puget Sound, the boat's tilted way over. Well, the little thing, you see, the little bathroom, what do you, I don't know what you call it on a boat, commode? What is it? What's it called? Um, it swung on a, like a, a lever thing. So as the boat tilted, you stayed straight. And it was like, whoa, the whole boat's moving, and the whole thing was on this swinging thing. And um, it was kind of fun, you know, <laughs> sitting in there. But um, that's the idea here, that no matter what goes on, and um, for all of us, um, as life turns and twists and there's uncertainties and things are out of kilter, this, this, this sanctuary of the soul stays level. And in that place, God says, I come along and I level you out. I bring smoothness of spirit and life to you in that place, even though everything around could just be absolute disaster. Um, and that's the word here. He finds this calmness and quietness, this smoothing and this leveling. Um, in Michigan, there, uh, the place we stayed in the summers, Lake Michigan was out there, and there's this channel that went in. Um, from there, and we used to go out in the lake, and now and then get, Lake Michigan gets very rough, and um, so we'd be in there, had this boat, had, had this little three-horse motor on the back, and I'd buzz out there, and the waves would get really crazy, and suddenly it was way too big for the boat, and the boat was just going all over the place, and bouncing in, and so you'd get some speed up, because you got to get into the channel, and this channel was pretty narrow, you know, it was like, you know, it's like 15 feet across or something, and the waves are just smashing through it, and I was always afraid it was going to smash into this, the, like the barriers on the side, because the waves start throwing the boat all over the place, and you don't really have control to go straight. And there's always a sense of, all of a sudden, this adrenaline as you'd, we'd head for that channel to try to get in there. And it would just be this moment of 
where it just get more chaotic. And suddenly we get about 15, 20 feet in the channel with the sides, and it just stopped. It would just all stop. And it was just smooth. And I was like, oh, we got there. And that's the picture here, that in the midst of all these things, David comes into this place, and he says, God draws me to this place. And all of a sudden, all the thrashing around and the question of everything stops, and there's, there's peace, and there's contentment. And there's not even answers to the questions, but there's rest for his soul. Ultimately, a quieted soul comes when we run to the arms of a transcendent and full of love God, and it's found no place else. A quieted soul is found when we run into the arms, and, and God, this picture of this mother here is the picture of God for us, the arms of a transcendent and full love embracing God, and in that place, in that place alone, um, we find quietness of spirit. I think I've told this story before, but um, I, uh, at the, after college, I was in Brazil um, for a few months in the jungle, and I uh, went with a friend of mine, and we worked with some missionaries there, and um, we were, uh, I mean, we were terrified the first week, because it was jungle. You thought we imagined, my brothers would send me all these pictures of things that were in the jungle that we would see, and um, so the first, the first week, you know, we're hearing everything, and we're just, we were just, we were afraid, you know, um, and uh, we stayed in this little um, kind of a shack with some hammocks up on this hill, and we had this, these chickens, this chicken coop that was attached to our place with all these chickens in there, and then down below where the missionaries had their house, and um, so we would spend the evening down there with them playing Rook, um, which was the Christian card game that we could play, so we played Rook down there, and uh, they would have a generator going, so you couldn't hear anything going for a couple hours, so some electricity, and they would shut the generator off. We were supposed to close up the chicken coop each night and put the chickens in because they were kind of valuable. Um, they couldn't, you didn't find them in the jungle. Um, and so we were down one night playing and uh, cards, and they turned the generator off. My friend and I headed up the hill, and we always use a flashlight to look where we're going so we don't step on anything nasty. And um, we get up there, and we started seeing chickens, dead chickens, out in the grass. And there's a chicken with blood over it, and there's another chicken without a head, and there's feathers, and there's wings. And we look, and all the chickens were dead. They're all just torn up, and it was just a disaster. And so we immediately assumed that whatever killed the chickens was about to kill us, right? It's, it's like right there. And um, here, 22 years old, and we were screaming, you know, just screaming. And we forgot about, we didn't look at the trail at all. We just ran down the hill as fast as we could. And we were like little children running to mom and dad when you're terrified. And we were yelling and screaming, and they're all dead, and we're coming unglued and all this stuff. And Mr. Cable, he and his wife had been there about 20 years already, um, I remember he didn't get mad about the chickens being dead. He just said, it's okay, it's okay. And he just kind of put his hands, and he put his hand on my shoulder, I remember, and he says, let's go look. He didn't grab a gun. He didn't grab anything. He just kind of walked out the door and said, let's go take a look. And I remember, um, I still remember how it felt. I immediately felt at peace, immediately. Everything just went away. Um, And it was because of who I was with, and it changed everything. There was still something out there, and there were still dead chickens, and I was still, we felt bad because we wrecked it up, you know, we didn't do our job, um, but everything was okay um, because of who we were with, and that is what David is calling all of us to um, again and again and again. God, who's bigger than our problems, who, who places his hand upon us, and the results as we humble ourselves and wait on him 
and trust him and worship him, he says, it's okay because I'm here. The God who created everything is right here with us. Um, Cameron, if you guys, the worship team could come back up. Um, I want us to do a little something um, this morning. They're going to play um, uh, a song. It's, it's actually a very short song I heard years and years and years ago. And um, it's just a repetition of some lines from this psalm. Um, and they're going to sing them over and over again. Um, so if you're wondering why, why we keep singing these words over and over again, it's because, um, I don't know about you, but to enter that place of quietness, to really trust God with it, um, I don't go there. I go there dragging my feet a little bit, quite honestly. Um, the other th- when I get quiet, the things that occupy my soul, some of them are hard things, don't go away real quick. And so we want to take some time um, to actually sit still long enough um, that those things might actually come to mind pretty quick. Um, so you can sing with them. It's really easy. Or just don't sing at all and close your eyes. And I would just ask you to, to ponder about that God is bigger than all of us, that we have a great and a holy God. Second of all, ponder the fact that God has entered into the place wherever you are at, for um, at home, in all of our duties and chores, for our jobs, for our relationships, all these different places. He has entered into there. He has stepped right in the middle of that place. Um, Ponder those two things. And as you do so, I imagine our anxieties are going to come up. Um, our fears, our hopes, the things that we're disappointed in, our questions. And I want to encourage you, just take those and put your hands out and give them to God while we're, doing, while we're singing this song, while we're listening. And then at a certain point in the song, I'm going to come up here and I'm going to get, say, let's pray now. And I'm going to encourage you, if you would dare do so, um, to stand up where you are. We can pray prayers of thanksgiving. You might even be willing to pray and say, Lord, I am anxious about this, or this is a pain in my life, and you just want to offer those things up to him out loud, and we will pray those back to the Lord. And then I'll close this, and we're going to go into another song um, as we enter in those places of rest. So um, sit in quietness, wait on him. Um, The things that rise to your heart, take a hold of those things, and we will offer those to him in prayer.